0: And welcome to the Media Law Podcast newscast. Collect Tom and Paul here to take you through the latest media law headlines. We have the first successful civil claim for an intimate image abuse, a court of appeal decision in Banks and Cadwallader, and criticism of football pundit Gary Lineker, as well as a settlement of the Kobe Bryant photo dispute in the US. But first, I want to start with Matt Hancock and his WhatsApps. Journalist and ghostwriter Isabel Oakeshott has released over 100,000 WhatsApp messages from the former health secretary to the Daily Telegraph, revealing exchanges between Mr. Hancock and his colleagues about COVID 19 policy at the height of the pandemic. Mr. Hancock shared these messages with Oakeshott while he, she was working on his Pandemic Diaries book. Oakeshott broke an NDA to release these messages, but has argued that she was acting in the public interest. The release has sparked widespread commentary on ethical journalism and misuse of private information. And I want to get your positions on on this debate. Has Oakshot abused a position of confidence, or is she a whistleblower?
1: Yeah, I think that's a it's a really good question, Colour. And um, we can we can sort of. We can play out in our minds how this sort of litigation might go if uh, Hancock does bring litigation. The suggestion uh, is that he's contemplating it, at least. We know that from an unfortunate uh, disclosure made to uh, GB News. Um, the So what kind of claims could he bring? Well, um, if he were to bring a misuse of private information claim, uh, we know that that would likely fail uh, on the basis of... Um, the information being in the in the public interest, um, we don't need to take a view on whether we think it's in the public interest for this information to be disclosed. We can easily categorise it as such and we know what judges do with when public interest information is at stake in those type of claims, they tend to just find automatically for the defendant. He would also be able to bring a breach of confidence claim, but the outcome of that is likely to be the same will end up in the same place. It'd be a question of uh, this being public interest information, uh, which would defeat the claim. What's interesting, though, I think, is if he were to bring a breach of contract claim. Now, the breach of contract claim is more complicated, but that then demands a defence on Oakshot's part uh, we might speculate about what the um, defence might look like. The suggestion from her camp is that uh, she's acting as some kind of whistleblower in bringing this claim. Now, anyone familiar with uh, Public Interest Disclosure Act uh, legislation knows that the act of whistleblowing and the protections affording to whistleblowing are complicated. They're made complicated by the fact that... That when you disclose to an external agency, in other words, when you disclose to someone who isn't a relevant authority, such as a regulator or here, the cabinet office or the police uh, themselves, you then have to demonstrate why it's reasonable to do so. So the question that she would have to answer is why it's reasonable or why it was reasonable for her to publish this information to the public rather than bring it to the attention of a relevant authority for these purposes. And that, I would suggest, is difficult for her.
2: I think with the potential for a misuse of private information claim, just to go back to that since Paul mentioned it at the outset, it's perhaps complicated by the sheer volume of information here, so we're talking about a hundred thousand plus text messages over two million words, and not all of these are going to be text messages in which there is a public interest and disclosure. Now it remains to be seen which of these end up being selectively published by the Telegraph. They've published some. They're going to continue to publish others over, I should imagine, a period of weeks and months. There's a treasure trove of material there. But the public interest defence is only going to operate for those messages where there is a genuine public interest in the information. And the way that misuse of private information doctrine works, the courts must engage in an intense focus on the particular facts of the case, including the particular information that is complained about. So if this ended up going to court and misuse of private information case, it strikes me that it would be a very lengthy, arduous piece of high court litigation because, there, uh, because of the sheer volume of material that would have to be analysed. Um, but I broadly agree with Paul. Assuming that the telegraph is reasonably judicious in what it publishes, which is perhaps a big assumption, but assuming that's the case, and that what it publishes is material in which there is a reasonably straightforwardly arguable public interest, then yeah, an MPI claim is not going to avail Hancock here, um, nor anyone else who is the subject of the information. Hancock is not the only subject of these messages. We've uh, already heard uh, in the Telegraph's reporting messages between Hancock and various cabinet members and also between Hancock and various members of the press, including, for example, an exchange with the then-editor of the uh, Evening Standard, uh, George Osborne, um, which reveals some really quite troubling and troublingly close relationships between editor of a newspaper that's supposed to be holding the government to account and the government during a pandemic Uh, where in essence um osborne is seeking to do hancock some political favors in the way that he's presenting information about the pandemic in return for some exclusive quotes
1: Since you've raised the point, Tom, I'm going to get my geek on, if I may, because thinking about it, this would be a really interesting case by which to revisit the principles set out in the Court of Appeal decision in Murray, thinking about what counts as private information, because on the one hand, you have an act of self-disclosure here. You have Matt Hancock handing the information over voluntarily to Oakshot. So one of the questions that the court's meant to ask itself in determining is this private information are the circumstances in which the information was obtained. It's not as if OakShot has stolen or purloined this information. She was given access to it. But on the other side of that debate is the point that we should think about the purposes for which the information was obtained. And that then sets up an interesting dialogue, I think, between whether the court would be prepared to allow Hancock to say, yes, I did voluntarily hand this information over, but I only did so for a specific purpose and no other purpose. Because if the court says well, you handed this over voluntarily, therefore it can't be public uh, can't be private. Um, then it would make the, the defense even more straightforward for, for Oakshop. But if it says, well actually no, it was handed over for a specific reason, then that uh, m- makes for an interesting debate m- amongst people like us on the nature of privacy itself. And there is some case law, I think, that would support Hancock on the, on this uh, point. There's a number of different cases, uh, I think, but, but one of which is one uh, that involves uh, Katie Price. Um, it's a little-known um, uh, first-instance decision. It was brought when Michael Tuggenhart was still sitting as a, as a judge. It was to do with information relating to her... Uh, relationships which she disclosed to a limited number of people uh with the tacit uh, assumption that they wouldn't share it any further and the court said that that was not her forsaking her her privacy interest yeah uh, sorry right. um,
2: you're you're, ab- you're absolutely right there paul i I agree with you um that this is an opportunity to relook at that and i would have thought as you do that Hancock does have some reasonable arguments here on the privacy part, um, because precisely at that point—the purposes for which the information was uh, given—and um, when you think of cases like McKenna and Ash, where information is exchanged between friends and then becomes the subject of much wider disclosure beyond the bounds of the friendship. And we could go back to earlier cases in breach of confidence. You can go back as far as the 80s to cases like Stevenson Avery. It's a well enough established part of confidence law um, that the purposes for which the information are given uh, is, is that they ought to be confidential. Um, uh, and it's a part of confidence law that I think has been relatively straightforwardly translated into misuse of private information, though. The precise relationship between those two doctrines now is, of course, as we've said many times in this podcast and elsewhere, a subject of, of live, rather nerdy debate uh, amongst an extremely small number of academics. Um, so, I, I, no, I but think, cool but of course, even if he were successful at that point, he still runs up against the public interest problem when you get oh, to, yeah. uh, the latter yeah. part. So it becomes kind of moot at that stage. No, yeah, but there is there is an interesting
1: parallel here between and you brought up Stevens and Avery, so I'm going to continue with that. Mm. The, the nature of the relationship in which the information is disclosed, because the court still keeps slipping into the language of confidentiality here, and expectations of confidentiality in a relationship. And we still see cases in which one night stands of the sort of and variety are said not to involve much by way of confidentiality. So there is an interesting question here about whether. Hancock should have known, or ought reasonably to have known, that disclosing information, A, not only to a journalist, but B, to a journalist with a track record of freely passing on information to the public that she thought was juicy and interesting, whether that in any way diminished his right to privacy.
2: I do think one other possible outcome from this is worth talking about, which is... Um, what this means for the future of political journalism. Um, because let's, you know, fast forward a year or so, maybe a couple of years, assume that there is some litigation against Oakshot, and she comes out relatively unscathed from it. Um, if this happens, it will be difficult for politicians to trust journalists that when they say i'm telling you this off the record they will stick to it if the courts give their blessing to journalists to disclose matters of public interest um even where they've previously promised confidence um, and i think that could well happen as a matter of law but it will make for a, a big change in the practice of journalism um, and one thing that the court can take into account is, um, the public interest in maintaining confidences and the public interest in maintaining privacy in certain circumstances. I think the confidence here is more important. Um, and this is something that, Colette, you were talking about just before we started recording. Um, uh, that is something that the courts may find themselves taking into account in this case or at least the argument, I suspect, will be presented that they ought to take it into account. Um, there is this kind of tacit agreement between politicians and the political journalistic class that politicians will give them give the journalists access in return for promises about how information obtained will be used. Um, it seems to me that what Oakshot has done here could well turn into a kind of unilateral trashing of that relationship. Um, at the very least, it puts a strain on it, and it shows us the nature of that agreement, which is really very flimsy. Yeah, and this
1: this raises the point about the purpose of a regulator, a newspaper regulator in these circumstances, because this is uh, as well as a legal issue, this is an ethical issue. This is about the way that journalists treat sources. Now, um, sorry to bang on about press regulation again, but I'm going to. Um, the IPSO code at clause fourteen says, in relation to confidential sources, journalists have a moral obligation to protect confidential sources of information. Now, we can read that narrowly. We can to mean only to protect the names of um, sources, to give them anonymity. But that's not actually what the clause says. The clause is sufficiently wide enough, sufficiently open textured to actually cover a situation like this. Now, I don't see a problem with a regulator, if asked by Hancock or even of its own volition, to remind Oakshot of the damage that she is doing to the profession itself, to journalism, to political journalism, by acting in this unethical way, regardless of the, whether the ends justify the means. After all, the regulator can issue an adjudication which has nothing more than a moral purpose that has nothing more than a a uh, moral sting to it, doesn't have financial consequences, um, but it's unlikely to do so. We know that Ipso won't do anything here. It'll hold its hands up and say, oh, well, um, it's in the public interest. And the reason for that is because when it suits Ipso, Ipso will read the code as if it was simply a statement of law. And it will say, well, no law has been breached here or anything in close proxim- approximation to a law. So it raises a question again of what Ipso is doing, seeks to do. Now, I appreciate I'm being slightly hard on Ipso here because I'm judging them before they've actually done anything one way or the other. But if past experience tells me anything, it's that Ipso won't even um, lift a finger to investigate this. And that, for me, is a missed opportunity for it to demonstrate that it is capable of holding journalists to account uh, in terms of their ethical obligations.
0: On the topic of press regulation, something else I want to mention today is Match of the Day host Gary Lineker is in hot water with the BBC after he posted a tweet criticising the UK government's asylum policy and comparing the language to that used in Germany in the 1930s. The Director General, Tim Davey, who has made impartiality a cornerstone of his leadership, has spoken to Lineker but would not answer any questions on how many strikes the presenter has left. This is not the first time Lineker has been criticised for political comments. In October 2022, the BBC's Complaints Unit found Lineker had broken impartiality rules in a tweet asking whether the Conservative Party planned to hand back their donations from Russian donors. Lineker is a sports commentator, not a news or political journalist, so has he actually broken any impartiality rules here or do they not apply?
1: Well impartiality rules um, is uh, a wonderfully uh, ambiguous um, term uh, that uh, a cynical observer could say are only applied uh, when it suits a particular political narrative Um, Lineker as other commentators have pointed out was also very critical of Qatar's Uh, human rights uh, track record uh, in the lead up to and in fact during the World Cup, he wasn't disciplined about that. Now that was a partisan position for him to take, one that we all agreed with, but it was still a partisan position. Um, The question of impartiality again is a strange one because I'm sure listeners have noticed that Laura Koonsberg uh, and her track record in uh, dealing with uh, criticism of this government uh, could be accused of having a partisan view, you, of espousing partisan view. She seems a lot kinder to the Conservatives than she does to any other party. Um, she doesn't seem to be getting into any bother about that. BBC Question Time, when we look at the panel on BBC Question Time, seems to be increasingly filled with as many right-wing observers uh, as can be uh, seated on the uh, panel bench. We've had people from GB News, uh, Talk TV, Nigel Farage, from time to time makes uh, appearance after appearance, uh, which of itself suggests a sort of political bias. Um, This is not uh, me engaging in some kind of uh, conspiracy theory. We know that the BBC has key positions that are filled by the government, there are political appointments. Richard Sharp is a political appointment, for example. Richard Sharp, as we know, has been accused of uh, enabling Johnson uh, when uh, previously to obtain an eight hundred thousand pound loan. Um, that seems to me a more problematic incident of um, partiality partisan behaviour than than anything Gary Lineker has said. The other issue, of course, is the nature of how Lineker has expressed himself. He hasn't done this, hasn't made this point, whilst presenting Match of the Day. He's done it on his own personal Twitter page. Uh, of course, that Twitter page is accessible by all, um, but still. Is he not entitled to have a view uh, on these matters in his personal capacity? Is it not possible for us to divorce Lineker, the presenter of um, Match of the Day, from Lineker, the individual? And, of course, Lineker is a freelance uh, journalist. He's a freelancer rather than an employee specifically of the BBC. So it seems strange to me to say that he's breached impartiality Uh, given one the political climate two the context of the BBC and three the circumstances in which she delivered this information
2: Uh, I I don't think this is really an impartiality issue this is a question of whether the BBC want to maintain the relationship with a football presenter who has a habit of speaking his mind on political matters for my money I'm entirely happy for him to continue doing this. Maybe the BBC decides that it isn't. If it isn't, it can terminate its agreements with him because, as Paul rightly says, he's not an exclusive employee of the BBC. He does work for other stations um, and has done for a long time. And he can find work in a number of different places, I'm sure. Um, But given what paul said about the bbc hardly being a place where uh, there are no political biases it would seem to me to be odd to draw the line here um then could put out a tweet on a matter that is of enormous controversy and for which he enjoys a considerable amount of public support in his position Um, This really, to me, is just a classic example of conservative government snowflakery. A prominent popular person has criticised their flagship policy, possibly their only policy at the moment, as being unspeakably cruel. And this has upset them. Um, And so they would like him to be cancelled. To say nothing, please. Um, I'm not a person who I mean, I've said before on this podcast, I think accusations of attempts at cancelling are often overblown. I don't think that there is any likelihood of Lineker being cancelled, and I don't think Gary Lineker would come out and say, I have to, you know, people have to stop trying to cancel me. But we've heard plenty of that from the political right recently. Um, Uh, I I think it's, you know, just straight up bit of um, political hypocrisy um, uh, coupled with a bit of uh, government snowflakery.
1: Well, and it it once again calls into question the intellectual honesty of a man like Dominic Raab and his policy on free speech. I mean, he told us that he wanted to introduce a new Bill of Rights that would specifically favour... Freedom of expression over all other rights and interests. That's the tenor of that bill. I haven't once heard Dominic Raab in the past forty-eight hours stand up for Lineker and say this is exactly the type of freedom of expression that I'm talking about in my
2: bill. Yeah. If someone had tried to if someone had tried to shut down Gary Lineker for coming onto a university campus and saying this, I'd have expected the government free speech brigade who are all about preventing university campuses from stopping people, whoever they might be, from saying whatever they like to be up in arms about it. But of course, they wouldn't be because they uh, only care about free speech when it is on matters that they agree with. And and from the start, I've said we need to be careful about this
1: Bill of Rights. I don't trust Rob at all. And this just is further proof that when this government says it has an interest in freedom of speech, When it has an interest in strategic lawsuits against public participation, it's not to be trusted.
2: But maybe we speak too soon. After all, we haven't given Dominic more than 48 hours to come out and say something. So, Dominic, if you're listening, um, we're waiting to hear from you. And I'm sure Gary would appreciate the support.
0: (laughs) I'm going to move on to the Court of Appeal judgment delivered on the 28th of February 2023 in favour of the appellant Aaron Banks in his defamation claim against Carol Cadwallader, with a finding that Cadwallader's TED Talk had caused serious harm to his reputation. The claim relates to allegations about the relationship between Mr Banks and the Russian government in relation to the acceptance of foreign funding, which were found to convey a meaning that Mr Banks had been dishonest about the nature of this relationship. The trial judge, Mrs Justice Stein, held that the Section 4 Defamation Act 2013 defence of public interest fell away after the National Crime Agency and Electoral Commission found there was no evidence of Mr Banks receiving third-party funding or acting as a third party's agent. However, Mrs Justice Stein determined that serious harm needed to be reconsidered in respect of this post-defence period and ruled that Mr Banks' claim failed as he had not established it. Delivering judgment for the court, Lord Justice Woolby held that Stein had been correct in principle to reconsider the issue of ser- serious harm in relation to the period after Miss Cadwallader's public interest defence fell away. However, Stein had erred in ruling that the continuing publication of Miss Cadwallader's TED talk had not caused serious harm to Mr Banks' reputation. It was held by the Court of Appeal that Stein had no proper basis to find that the publishes of Miss Cadwallader's statements were within her echo chamber and of no consequence to Mr. Banks. As a result, it was wrong to find no serious harm to Mr. Banks' reputation. Serious harm was ine- an inevitable inference from the inherent gravity of the allegation and the scale of publication. This is actually something we kind of predicted when the original judgment came out. So I'm going to assume you would agree this is the outcome you expected?
2: Uh, Yeah, broadly, um, I do think it's interesting that we have that indication on gravity of the imputation um, because in the Lush Show case, only two examples were given of a statement, the imputation of which would be so serious that an inference could immediately be drawn as to serious harm. Um, and those would have been imputations involving child sexual abuse and terrorism. Um, Now, I'm aware the Court of Appeal is not saying here that there's an automatic finding of serious harm, but rather you couple the severity of the imputation with the uh, extent of publication and you can draw an inference from the two of those together, but still this strikes me as being of a different order of severity to the examples given in Le Show. Um, And so it is a a useful case to put into the canon of case law that tells us where exactly um, we plot things on the spectrum of serious harm, of what needs to be proven, how much evidence is required. Um, So it'll make for a useful teaching aid, I've no doubt.
0: Another judgment I want to briefly mention is that delivered by Thornton J in FGX and Gaunt on the 27th of February 2023. This is the first civil case on intimate image abuse commonly referred to as revenge porn of its kind. The claim advanced against the defendant was for intentionally exposing the claimant to a foreseeable risk of injury or severe distress, which resulted in injury, infringement of the claimant's privacy, and breach of the claimant's confidence. The defendant failed to provide any defence to any of these uh, these aspects of the claim, and damages were awarded to the total of ninety seven thousand forty one and forty one pounds and sixty one pence. I think it's worth mentioning, first of all, just the the size of that award is obviously has a naturally deterrent effect. Uh, And also something that's worth interesting is that the cost of removing the images was part of that um, damages award. The total was £21,600. £21,600. Obviously, with things like this, there's always a risk that more photos will be available online. And that's something that's often factored into the damages award. But the fact that the judge here has taken steps to try and reduce the actual the, the, the cause of the harm itself and the ongoing suffering that any claimant in these kinds of cases suffers is um, an interesting precedent. Yeah, to set.
1: And, and an important
2: one. Um, sorry, can I just jam in on that? Because... Um... So on the damages point, I've, I note that the general damages awarded were £60,000, and there were special damages on top of that, including the costs of removal um, of the images. Um, that £60,000, it's worth noting, is exactly the same as in Mosley, which suggests that the court has picked a figure based on... What was at the time in Mosley a record sum of damages for a privacy violation uh, that involved uh, accounts of pictures of and video footage of um, the sexual encounters that uh, Mosley had been engaged in? Um, I do wonder why exactly the same amount has been awarded a decade and a half later, given inflation. Um, is the implicit message from this hmm. that the claimant in this case suffered a less serious violation of privacy than Mosley? Um, or does that have to do with Mosley's celebrity? Um, maybe the court has decided that the viewership of the uh, intimate images in this case is likely to be less than the, the viewership of the ones in mosley but um uh, in in some ways it's a it's a useful thing because it's showing us that mosley was not a one-off and that the courts see sixty thousand is essentially your starting point for the uploading uh of the non-consensual uploading of intimate images um and that's quite a useful thing to uh to make a note of and again useful teaching aid we know that's where it is um But And and I'll fully admit I haven't yet looked at the judgment in detail. I do want to look a little more at the reasoning behind the general damages award, um, just so I can fully understand it.
1: Yes, I think it's also just worth um, pointing out, though, the the value of this claim. I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. uh, As compared to a misuse of private information, uh, claim of the type that we've seen, because of course you could, you could, in theory, uh, get uh, damages from from misuse of private information. Um, uh, specifically, the the two cases that have been uh, decided that I can think of that were, uh, along the lines of misuse of private information would uh, Constant uh, constant Stavlos, I'll say that again, conto Stavlos and uh, Mendehune. Uh, in 2012 and also uh, amp and persons unknown uh, in 2011 um those though were claims f- uh, for an injunction uh, an injunction to prevent and also to remove uh, the images themselves um i don't think damages uh, were well i know damages weren't awarded uh, at least according to the to the open judgment. I don't think damages were asked for either uh, in that case. So this is definitely uh, a progression. It's an important progression. And hopefully, as uh, Colette said, the deterrent effect here is valuable. Um, hopefully, this will get some press coverage to try and tackle what seems to be the culture of men uh, expecting, feeling entitled to images, intimate images uh, of their um, uh, loved ones.
0: The final thing I want to mention today is the family of the late Kobe Bryant have agreed to a £28.5 million settlement with Los Angeles County to resolve the remaining claims in a lawsuit over deputies and firefighters sharing graphic photos of the NBA star and his 13-year-old daughter and other victims killed in a 2020 helicopter crash.
2: Well, I think the award there is um, notable. I recognise it's a settlement, but it's a settlement that... Uh, builds in awards that have been obtained at trial from juries and essentially is agreeing to uh, take most of those awards um, uh, and waive the right to further litigation on behalf of other um, family members. Um, So it brings that chapter to an end with $29 million nearly um, awarded there or has been obtained by the claimants there. And it is worth looking at the, the the difference between that and some of the cases we see in this country. We've just looked at a case where a claimant who is still very much alive um, has awarded £60,000 in damages because of the uploading of intimate images that I presume she will continue to be haunted by for a very long time. Um, and then we have pictures... Uploading of uh, the bodies of Kobe Bryant and others um, tragically killed in that accident, who themselves, of course, will not suffer ongoing trauma. Um, the claim then brought on behalf of the family, presumably for psychological distress, and by no means do I suggest that you know, that that, that, this is, that there is. I'm not suggesting that the family of Kobe Bryant don't suffer tremendously with this on a daily basis, but I do question the difference in the size of the damages there being $29 million. Um, Is this just the quirk of the American system of litigation where jury awards can be fantastically high, whereas in this country judicial damages awards are quite tightly controlled? probably Um, but it is striking
0: Mm. it's worth noting as well that the uh the pictures weren't actually shared publicly they were shared between firefighters and deputies so it's another difference as well in comparison to the payment here in fgx who had her images uploaded online for anyone to see yes all right. Well, that rounds up everything that I wanted to talk about today. Thank you very much, Tom and Paul, for your wonderful insights as always.
2: Bye, Colette. Thanks, Colette. See you.
0: As ever, follow us on social media at Media Law Podcast, and we will be back with more newscasts in the weeks to come. Thanks very much. Bye.